And now, people of God, let's turn to the book of Colossians as we continue our series in Colossians to the third chapter, the third chapter, as we look together at the first four verses, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Let's bow humbly before the Lord before reading God's Word. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your words, we are struck with amazement, really, as we ponder our undeservedness and that you have given to us this rich treasure in which Christ is revealed. And so we would live all of life under the authority of your word. But even as our text will indicate, this is the Christian's great battle. And so we pray, Father, that you will strengthen us for the battle. We know the war is won through Christ's victory on the cross, but as we skirmish in this present evil age on our way under the authority of your word to our heavenly home, may we know also there the victory of the cross and the resurrection of our Savior. And as always, Father, there may be those among us today who are strangers to grace, who do not know the Lord Jesus. And just as the gospel is for the Christian, so also the gospel is to be preached to the lost. And we pray that those who do not know you will hear and will believe and be saved. May this entire season, as we work toward Easter, be marvelously used of you, we pray that we may show compassion to our lost friends and co-workers and loved ones, and that many might come to know the Lord Jesus as we celebrate together the victory of the cross and anticipate our worship of the Lamb on Easter Sunday morning. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses. This is the Word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory." God the Father set his seal upon the finished work of Christ on his cross by raising him bodily from the dead. He raised him up from the tomb. His real body, though now glorified, was raised by the Father. The same body that was placed in the tomb was raised by the Father from the tomb. And then Paul saw the risen Christ on the Damascus road, and it changed everything for him. He who once persecuted the church of God, and in persecuting the church, persecuted Christ, now serves him, even to the point of death. He serves the one he once despised. Christ the Lord is risen, he is risen indeed, and the resurrection of Christ from the dead changes everything, simply everything. And Paul's entire theology is resurrection theology. He looks to the future, for example. He proclaims that Jesus will return and the dead in Christ will be raised. Why? Because the dead are in Christ 
Because of Jesus' resurrection, believers will be raised. And Paul also proclaims that those who trust in Christ have already been raised in Him. And so in Romans 6 and Ephesians 2 and in other places in Paul's epistles, he says that those of us who have trusted in Christ already know resurrection, life, deep down in the core of our being. We have been raised from the tombs of our depravity by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now, this is what Paul speaks of as union with Christ, and it's a rather complicated idea, truth, reality. I would remind you that when we preach through Ephesians, that early in the Ephesian series, I took the opportunity to unpack all of the varied aspects of union with Christ, and I would remind you that that sermon is accessible to you. But this concept of union with Christ, though it is difficult to grasp, I would remind you, is of fundamental importance, and we see it here in this text very, very clearly. For now, perhaps the best way to understand union with Christ is to think of marriage. Husband and wife are united. They remain distinct, and yet they become one. He promises to love and to nourish and to protect her. She takes his name. And promises to honor and obey him. The two are one in blessings, one in trials, in plans, and one in purpose and in heart. What is legally his is now legally hers. Well, that illustrates to us the concept of union with Christ. Paul stresses this union here. The Christ with whom we have union, unlike the view of the heretics that Paul is opposing in Colossae, is God incarnate who died for us and rose again. And unlike the incipient Gnosticism trying to take a grip on the churches at Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea that leaves the sinner in despair, union with Christ is true, legally, and vitally for the believer. And that's what he wants to work out in these verses at the first part of chapter 3. H.C.G. Moles said this about these verses. This is one of the golden paragraphs of the whole Bible. To countless hearts, it is one of their peculiar treasures. There is a celestial music for them in its very phrase and rhythm. It lifts the soul as with wings till we get a glimpse of that exalted one sitting throned after death at the right hand of power, and in some sense realize that where he is, we, his people are, as to the true heart and basis of our regenerate being, and know that that basis is nothing less nor lower than himself, and stand upon that fact, and look out from it towards the coming glory, and turn to a renewed and joyful walk here in this present world by faith in the Son of God. Now that's classically and beautifully stated, and really summarizes well these verses. Now remember that in the preceding verses, the Apostle has taught us that we died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, and now he's going to focus upon the positive side. Not only have we died, but we also have been raised with Christ. So this is really the first thing we see as we move into these verses. The first thing is this, life in Christ is resurrection life. Life in Christ is resurrection life. And you see how he he puts it in verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
if then you have been raised, which is an aorist passive. Now you know when something is passive, it means it's being done to you. And so this is something that has been done for us and something that is done to us, indicating our our co-resurrection with Christ that is the result of God's grace in our lives. Now, in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul spoke of the symbolism of baptism pointing to our new life in Christ. Go back to chapter 2 and read with me verses 11 and uh, 12 and 13. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power working of God, powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And so he speaks of our having been made alive, raised in Christ Jesus. Lightfoot speaks of the concave and the convex in a circle. The negative side, the death and the burial, implies the positive side of the resurrection. And if I can bring the quote that is my favorite as I think about this passage to you from A.T. Robertson. A.T. Robertson says this, We now, we, you believer, we are now on the other side of the grave and are walking in the heavenlies with Christ. Do you realize that? That because you are raised spiritually, you have the promise of resurrection of your body in the last day, but already you are in union with Christ, you are already, in principle, on the other side of the grave. You're raised in Christ. And that's why the believer doesn't fear death. Now this is profound. But I wonder if this still sounds somewhat vague to you. Well, let's try and understand it. You have been raised with Christ. The Christian is raised in him, which means the Christian life is all about resurrection. And so there's an absolute declaration, an accomplished fact, the defining reality of your Christian life, the defining reality of your Christian life is resurrection. Again, think about marriage as an illustration of union with Christ. When marriage takes place and this bride is now in union with her husband, this is a determinative reality. Now think of marriage at its best. Think of Christian marriage. There was a ceremony of union, and it would be ridiculous for either of them to say, well, this ceremony has no effect on my life. I can live life as I did before. This union affects everything. Life can never be the same. So Paul wants us to understand that our union with Christ was accomplished in his death and resurrection. It is the determinative reality. It affects everything. Our union with Christ affects all of my Christian life to the point that my life is subsumed under the theme of resurrection. The call to realize resurrection life is the whole point of these verses. To apply its reality to the way we live. Spiritual freedom does not come from asceticism, as the heretics were claiming. Spiritual freedom comes from knowing that you are raised with Christ and applying that truth and reality to your life. Which leads us to the second thing we see in the text. Having understood now that our Christian lives are resurrection lives... We now are told to seek 
Christ above. So again, look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, if that's the reality, if that is the unalterable truth about you, then he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Lift your eyes, brothers and sisters, to where Christ is seated, Christ's session at the right hand of God. There is your Lord in the place of power. There is your Lord in the place of authority and of sovereignty. Do you remember how Paul put it in that first chapter of Ephesians uh, in around verse 20 when he speaks of that resurrection power? The power that God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Or if you read the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews really, uh, for the most part, is all about this. Uh, In Hebrews, it begins by saying in verse 3 that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so there is your Savior in that position of sovereign power and authority. And the writer says, look up, look up, seek, seek him who sits at the right hand of God. You know, when I am privileged to expound the book of Hebrews, I like to point out what this means, that Christ is sitting there. What is he doing? So let me give you a list. Christ, as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, appears in the presence of God in your stead. He exhibits His acceptable and all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins in the court of heaven. That's why we can't perish. He intercedes for us His people. He enables parental pardon. That is, we've already been justified, pardoned once for all, but now as children we come to a father and He enables our our childlike coming to the Father to be received and accepted. He protects us from temptation. He progressively sanctifies each of His true children. He maintains our communion with God. He makes your service acceptable to the Father. And He presents all of your prayers to the Father so that every one of those prayers is received acceptably by Him and is heard and is answered Oh, it's a marvelous thing that Christ is at the right hand of the Father. No wonder then, Christian, Paul says, lift up your eyes to your exalted Lord, and he uses the word seek, which means go after it. Go after the things that are above. As a compass needle seeks a pole, so you are to seek those things which are above so that all of your aims center in Christ, where He reigns and rules and is exalted and is enthroned at the right hand of God. Is that what you want? Do you want your heart to be so enamored of Christ that you seek those things that are above, not those things that are on the earth, and you want all of your life to center upon Him? Is that what you want? Well, that leads us then to the third thing we see here. How do we do that? He says, set your minds on things above. That's the third thing. Set your minds on things above. Look at verse 2. 
set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, it's a present tense, and we would actually say it's progressive present, which means keep on setting your minds or keep on thinking. Not only seek, but think heavenly things. If you were an American patriot, a real patriot, and you were in Iran right now, upon what country would you think? You would want to come home, I'm sure. You are a citizen of heaven already. Your longing, my longing, should be for the heavenly courts and those things that are, that are consistent with heaven. Put it another way, if somehow you died and then were raised from the dead, would you, after having been raised from the dead, continue to set your minds on coffins and putrefying corpses? I don't think so. You'd want to set your minds on living life, wouldn't you? Well, that's what Paul is saying here. Christian, please pay attention to this. You and I are responsible for what we think. I'm responsible for my Christian mind. You are responsible for what you think. Resurrection life brings incredible blessing and also incredible obligation. And it obligates my mind to things that are heavenward. So the real battle for us as Christians, the real battle is in our minds. You know that. If you're a real believer, you know that. Keep your finger here, turn to Romans 12. Let's remember that verse or two that most of you have memorized. Romans 12, beginning in verse 1, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your, what is it? Mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we are to seek out heavenly things, to fill our minds with heavenly things. And again, a progressive present, we are to do it habitually. It's heavenly mindedness that makes you earthly good. You know the statement, he's so heavenly minded that there's, he's no earthly good? No such person. The truly heavenly-minded, Christ-exalting person is the one who has the most sense in earthly things. He's the caring person. He's the loving person. He's, these are the servants in the world, the people that preach the gospel or, out of a love for Christ, serve the poor or serve the sick, all because they're heavenly-minded. Look at Paul and his life and his thoughts and his ministry. Think of church history. Heavenly-minded people are the ones who started our great universities, who started our great hospitals, and our great charities. Even though most of those things are now secularized, they came from heavenly-minded people. So apply this to your struggle, whatever that struggle may be in your Christian life, because we all have struggles. Christian, you are responsible for what you put in your mind, for what goes on there, for what you dwell upon. You and I are responsible for our thoughts And since we are in union with Christ, we need to think Christ-exalting thoughts. A.T. Robertson put it very plainly, there are bad smells in every city, but only one with depraved nostrils seeks them out and revels in them like a sewer rat or a hyena. 
Some modern novelists call this realism and thus justify the slime they parade to the public. Now, he wrote that a long time ago, but he's right. You walk down through any city, you're going to have some horrible smells that will assault your nostrils. But it's only a depraved nostril that wants to seek out those horrible smells. So we are on our way to heaven. We're going to be confronted with all kinds of horrible smells in the city of this world. But we're seeking the city that is above. So, for example, are you fighting depression in your life? I certainly cannot enter into all the ins and outs of that question, but a great deal of the battle is won by learning to turn your thoughts heavenward. Have you opened your mind, some man, some woman here, to pornography? Then repent, leave it behind, and replace it with heavenly mindedness. Are you, in, are you discouraged about the direction of society, the devolution of our culture and society, or what you read on the news? Well, is your mind determined by God's sovereignty in all things? Do you see? That's what it means to think in a heavenly-minded fashion. So dying with Christ and living in union with Christ is also the power for our new direction, the new mind. We are not left alone in the battle, and there is no other power for holy living on the part of the Christian. There is no other power for holy living than that which comes from union with Christ. No other. Which leads us to see, fourthly, the hidden source for holy living is Christ. The hidden source for holy living is Christ. Again, notice verse 3. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In Christ you died once for all to the world. When he died, you died. You have a source for Christian living that the world cannot see. It's hidden to the world. The world cannot understand it. The world cannot know it. Your life is hid with Christ in God. The world cannot see that. The world sees the effects, but the world knows nothing of this communion that you and I have with Christ. But you do, Christian. And I wonder, are you drawing upon this hidden life of communion with Christ in whom you died to the world and in whom you live to God? Because if you are, it will show. How will it show? Well, that's next week, really. But the Apostle Paul says, this being the truth, here's what you put off in your life and here's what you put on. Here's what you kill and here's what you want to foster in your life. So stay tuned. But this shows that we are drawing upon our union with Christ. If we're drawing upon our union with Christ, it's going to show in our homes and our relationships and the workplace and the way in which we relate to one another. So consider this. We're married as a church to the prince who reigns. We are now nobility by virtue of our union with Christ. We are partakers of all of his benefits. We are co-heirs with the risen, exalted Lord. I am in Christ. I died in him. I rose in him. I have the privilege of communion with Christ. Then shall I grovel in the philosophy and viewpoint of the world? God forbid. Let me live life as the noble that I now am in Christ, the head and king of the church. Who is the ascended Christ? With whom are you united? How should that elevate your heart and your affections and your thoughts and your feelings? Well, remember in chapter 1, he tells us who this Christ is with whom we have union. 
Colossians 1.15 and following. Some of the most majestic descriptions of Christ found anywhere are found in Colossians. And here is the height of the height. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And if we cannot see that a focus upon this Christ cannot transform my thought life and my heart, then we're really missing the boat. Nothing could be plainer. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that defines the Christian life. So, let's take these things and return for a few minutes to this whole idea of our thought lives. Will you do that with me? Let's return to our thought lives. Do you see how this applies to your mind and to my mind? We've said that the battle is in the mind. We must put our minds on the exalted Christ. Well, of course, Negatively, that means some movie should not be watched, some book should not be read, but it's more than that. It's where we put our heart's affections as we are walking through the city with all of the smells that assault the nostrils. Keep your finger here. Turn to Romans 13. In Romans 13, without reading the entirety of this passage, the passage that Augustine read, by the way, that converted him, verses 13 and 14 of Romans 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now look at that verse again, 14. Put on, this is our union with Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Or it could be translated, don't plan to satisfy the flesh with its desires. Because our minds, and you know this is true, our minds tend to make plans for the fulfilling of the desires of the flesh. Before, you, you, you name it. Before a suicide, in almost every instance it's been planned in the mind. Before falling into sexual sin, usually, very rarely does that just happen. It's been planned for in the mind. 
Certain things have been allowed to come in and stay there to replace those heavenly thoughts. Before these things happen, the mind works to think these things out. A mind filled with fantasy or self-pity or rationalization or rebellious at various stages makes the way for this. The Puritans told the story of a man who wanted to commit three sins. He was tempted terribly to commit three sins. I won't repeat what the sins were. The point is this. He decided he would give in to the, to, to the two that he thought were least offensive, and in giving in to the two, he committed the worst. His mind, you see, prepared for that. So we develop wrong habits of thought over time. And your thought life is not brought under the Lordship of Christ. You make room for something in your mind that shouldn't be there. And you have an undisciplined mind. And then the thought is the father to the act. Right? We all know that's how it works. We have dark minds by nature. But you're ascended and risen in Christ. So the answer to this is mind renewal. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul tells us to deal with anxiety? Now Paul's in prison when he writes this in Philippians. But he says in Philippians 4.8, just to focus on this one verse... Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He's not being Pollyanna. He's saying, here I am in prison, but my mind is heavenly focused, and that's where your mind should be as well, Christian. It's mind renewal. Real, prayerful, determined, spirit-filled effort to think differently and to develop new habits of thought, a renewed mind. Jay Adams says wonderfully, the mind cannot be left empty. We all look forward to, anticipate, plan, and prepare for something. The Christian must replace sinful planning with righteous planning. So if your mind right now is focused on things on this earth, that is to say those things that are of the flesh, then the answer to that is to draw upon your union with Christ to set your mind and heart and affections on things that are above so that your mind is renewed and take overt steps rather than to plan to make provision for the flesh, make overt steps to serve Christ in positive ways and fill your mind and heart and life with those things that lead to the fulfilling of those things that are according to the Spirit. I hope this is clear to you. It's vital in our Christian walk. The mind, the mind, a Christian mind set on things above because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Who am I? It's where my mind is. So that's the hidden communion the world cannot know, the world cannot see. Your life is hid with Christ in God. But this hidden communion with God will not be hidden forever. And that leads us to the final thing we see here, the hope of Christ's coming. You see it here in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears 
Then you will also appear with him in glory, which is a reference to the return of Jesus Christ. We do not know when Christ will come, but the scriptures, as we see here, will have us to live constantly in light of the return of Jesus Christ. How can my mind be where it should not be if my mind is focused upon the fact that Christ is coming? And our life in Christ will not always have this hidden quality. Let's take the time to look at a few verses together, just a handful. First uh, John chapter 3. First John 3, the first three verses. First John 3, the first three verses. This is the little epistle of First John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, this is the return of Christ, we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And now, see how this affects your life? Verse 3, everyone who thus hopes, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. It affects your life with purity when you're focused on the return of Christ. That's what the text says, right? Doesn't it? I'm not making this up. Um, go to 1 Peter, the first chapter. 1 Peter. These beautiful words of promise. Now let me point out that he's talking about the return of Christ because in verse 5 he says, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in verse 7, he says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, which are references to the return of Christ. But he says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's the resurrection again. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, how does that affect your life now as you're going through persecution? Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he says right in the beginning of a book in which he's talking about persecution, you need to focus on the return of Christ, the benefits that you have in Christ, and the eternal unfading inheritance that belongs to you, and that is what will get you through it. Or take another passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. Thirteen and following. What a passage. Um, can't preach it all, of course, but here's what he says. How does this affect your life when you grieve? First uh, Thessalonians 4:13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Well, how does this affect my mind? How does it affect how I think? Well, verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words, so that we grieve, but not hopelessly, but as those who are in Christ. Time and time and time again, Second Peter, the same thing. It produces holiness of life when we're focused upon the return of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's not gratuitous. There's a purpose for which Paul, in this passage, has in Colossians 3, verse 4, focused on the return of Christ in a mind in which he talks about mind renewal and the renewal of the affections. I want to live. I don't know when Christ is coming, but I want to live as if Christ will come in my lifetime. I think every generation of Christians is responsible to live that way. So the next time you see me, I might have a Band-Aid or something over my nose. I'll be keeping my head on the clouds and I'll trip or something. But you see, it's important that we keep our affections on things that are above. You see the point of my humor? Let's set our affections there. Our eyes always there. Our hearts always there. Our minds always there. And then when the smells come in the city, we're not attracted to them. We're attracted to Christ. So we're one with Christ in his death, one with him in his resurrection, and we are seated in the heavenlies, and when we come, when he comes, Revelation 19 says that that great army is composed of the saints who have gone to be there. And they come, and there's the resurrection body. We're one with Christ. It defines life from the time we come to know Christ until the time Jesus comes again. So don't allow the concluding words of our service, come quickly, Lord Jesus, to be without thought or without heart. Now, with this in mind about the coming of Christ, let me point out about three things and then we're done. But not done, because the sermon goes on in your hearts. First of all, when Jesus comes again, do you realize that you're secure in him? And isn't that a great thing to know, that when the awesome Son of God returns... 2 Thessalonians says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not his gospel, that you will be secure. Because he says here, in verse 3 of Colossians 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When I was a boy in ninth grade, I think, my teacher asked me to stay after class. Well, why would my English teacher want me to stay after class? Well, she knew I was a Christian. She was a Christian. She had all kinds of doubts about her salvation. And so she talked to me about it. Now, you might find that unusual. I did. Somehow or other, she thought that perhaps I could be a help to her. I said, Miss Johnson, I took a quarter out of my pocket 
and I put it in the palm of my hand, and I closed my hand, and I did this. The Bible says, you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Can anything or anyone get to you without going through Christ or God? Well, no, I guess it can't, she said. You're secure in Christ. I think that was pretty good theology for a ninth grader. (laughs) He wasn't brought up in a reformed environment. And will you also notice how Paul puts this, you know, this Christ who is coming. Notice how he puts it there in verse 4. When Christ who is your life shall appear. Then you will also appear with him in glory. So that's the great question. Do you see it that way? Do you see this is my life? I'm going to live it my way. Or do you say, no, my life is purchased by the blood of the Lamb. I am raised in him. Life is all about Christ. It's all about Christ. So outwardly we may look like other men and women, but inwardly we are indwelled by God's Spirit and we are awaiting the blessed hope, the coming of Christ who is our very life. Is that how you live? Is that where your affections are? And then I think it's important to note that Paul says we are hidden in Christ, and surely there must be a connection, I think, with chapter 2, verse 3, in which, speaking of Christ, Paul said, you will remember, in whom, that is in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, And we are now hidden in Christ. He's the great treasure box, and we are hidden in the treasure box. And one of these days, the lid will be opened for the world to see, the universe. And he will be made manifest when he returns. And we also will be made manifest. And that hidden life of the heart that the world could not see, my friends, you will be there as trophies of grace. And the Lord will say, you see that person? That person that lived in sin and degradation, I purchased him through my own blood. That's my child. The whole universe will rejoice in looking at you as a trophy of grace. Sometimes I think, how ashamed I will be at the day of judgment when Christ comes again to think of my sins. But I don't think that's right thinking. Right thinking is this. I'm a sinner, no doubt about it. I'm as sinful as anyone here. As a matter of fact, I really do think I'm the chief of sinners. But on that day, it will all glorify the Lord because He saved me from my sin. That's how you should think about it. So the Son of God will come and He will play His divine organ and He will pull out all the stops and He will shake heaven and earth but the ground under your feet will be secure because you are in Christ, in union with Him. O Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Is it well with your soul? If it is not well with your soul, come to Jesus, put your faith in Christ, be by faith united to him, so that it may be well with your soul. And God's people said, Amen.